This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jenny Miller, who is in the Department of Surgery at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Jenny, thank you so much and welcome. Thanks, Pedro. It's so great to be on this. So, Jenny, uh, the reason for the discussion today is actually a, a very important topic, and, uh, and this actually um, drives from the uh, manuscript that was submitted to our journal. It's going to be our lead article um, by your team that is called Clinical Patterns and Genomic Profiling of uh, Recurrent Ultra-Low-Risk Endometrial Cancer. And this is obviously a very interesting and, and certainly relevant topic uh, because, as we all know, obviously we, we do have patients that um, often on original pathology seem very low risk, uh, grade 1 tumors with no invasion, even negative lymphascular space invasion, yet some of these patients uh, have a recurrence. So I think obviously this, this uh, manuscript touches on, on that point and, and is, is, a, is a very important aspect, particularly as it's looking at genomic profiling in these patients. So the first thing I wanted to, um, to do is to see if you could just um, discuss as to the rationale uh, from your perspective uh, for doing this study and, um, and how is this information really uh, relevant to the field of gynecologic oncology, particularly look, looking at uh, genomic profiling? Well, yes, uh, Pedro, that's exactly right. When we first talked as a team about an outline for this project, I was most interested in our patients with endometrial cancer who, as you mentioned, some will have absolutely no risk factors that are going to prompt us to talk about adjuvant therapy. And these are patients we tend to follow with fewer follow-up appointments for a shorter period of time. And we often will counsel that they have the lowest possible risk of recurrence. We would be very surprised if their cancer came back. And we've relied in the past and often now on these pathologic risk factors that you mentioned, lymphovascular space invasion, grade, myometrial invasion, and histologic subtype to guide treatment decisions and counseling. However, we are moving into an era of molecular profiling of tumors and have learned a lot about endometrial cancer that goes beyond these pathologic risk factors. So it was this in mind that we sought to identify potential risk factors that might be in this population of patients, including molecular features to help guide future prognostic counseling, follow-up, treatment, just anything we could determine in this population of use. Right, and, and Jenny, one of the things you, you mentioned um, is particularly as it relates to the, to the Cancer and Genome uh, Atlas, identifying molecular subtypes of, uh, of endometrial cancer that actually have prognostic implications. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about those, uh, I understand it's four molecular subtypes of endometrial cancer that you allude to in the, in the article? Yes, yeah, so the Cancer Genome Atlas, which is TCGA, how we often will shorthand that, is a research consortium that is through multiple institutions and have published the profiles of a lot of solid tumors but specifically endometrial cancer was comprehensively profiled in 2013. And among these tumors, there were over 200 tumors. Most were endometrioid. There were some serous and a few mixed histologies. And these authors were able to reveal unique novel subtypes, four of them within endometrial cancer. And they were associated with prognosis. The first was this pole E mutated, ultra mutated group that fared the best in terms of progression-free survival. 
And these are tumors who have hundreds of mutations in them. There's another group called microsatellite instable or hypermutated tumors. And this group are tumors that encompass the inherited cancer syndromes like Lynch syndrome cancer or somatic mutations, hypermethylated tumors that you find with mismatch repair deficient cancers. Mm -hmm. There were copy number uh, testing done on this cohort as well. And they identified two cohorts, a copy number low group, which is typically low-grade endometrioid, endometrial cancers, and a copy number high group is where you find your serous and serous-like cancers. The worst actors in this group were the copy number high. The best actors were the pole E ultramutated. And kind of in the middle were these copy number low MSI high groups. Okay. And, and Jenny, you talk about specifically um, something known as a CTNNB1 exon 3 hotspot mutation. So why is, why is this important? <laughs> well, that, first of all, is a mouthful. So when we <laughs> say CTNNB1, we're, we sometimes will just call it beta-catenin. It's a shorthand way to refer to that gene. It's an important gene in something called WNT, W-N-T, signaling pathway. And this is a gene that's involved um, generally with how cells proliferate, differentiate in normal cells. These beta-catenin mutations have been described in a lot of solid tumors, breast, melanoma, colon, but specifically in endometrial cancer, these exon-3 mutations have been described by prior researchers in endometrioid endometrial tumors. And it's a key region in the gene. So if you mutate that area, it can lead to this activation of the Wnt pathway abnormally so that cells will just continue to proliferate. And obviously that would contribute to tumor forming and progression of tumor. And so this work that's been done looks at how relevant are these mutations? Is it prognostic in endometrial cancer? And researchers have shown us that the majority of these mutations are found actually in early stage, low grade endometrial cancers in women who are typically younger than we would expect. And most of these tumors cluster kind of in this, what we think is a good prognosis subtype within the TCGA. But work done actually out of your institution at MD Anderson looked to see if we could independently cluster TCGA tumors. And those beta-catenin mutated tumors clustered out independently as a poor prognosis group among low-grade endometrial cancer. And it has led a lot of us to start questioning what's the relevance of beta-catenin in early-stage low-grade endometrial cancer? Hmm. And are we potentially missing an opportunity to appropriately treat maybe a higher risk group that if we took just the clinical and just the pathologic risk factors, we would have missed that. And so we talk about these subgroups with TCGA. We have this interesting research about beta-catenin. And I think what this does, it just calls to the forefront what some have said is, you know, go beyond lumping endometrial cancer based on what we know. And challenge all of us to start splitting endometrial cancer using good data that can show us how seemingly similar cancers can behave differently based on what we know about their molecular features. And beta-catenin has certainly been a hot topic in that regard. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. Uh, now, with all of this at hand, what was your hypothesis when you first looked to explore this in this ultra-low-risk patient? Well, as I mentioned, we wanted to identify women with endometrial cancer who had the lowest identifiable risk of recurrence 
and we kind of, we coined a phrase, ultra low risk, and hypothesized that in these women who had no identifiable risk, identifiable risk features, that there could be a higher risk group among them if we started to look at specific clinical, pathologic, surgical, and molecular features. So tried to drill in and really focus on this very uncommon group. And um, in, in terms of designing the study, uh, in terms of the methodology, what was your primary objective? What we really wanted to do is look at this group of women and examine all the features that I just mentioned. So clinical factors, surgical factors, oncolo oncologic outcome, molecular features, comparing those who recurred to those who did not recur to try and find a signal within those groups. Jenny, the, um, particularly you mentioned obviously the, the ultra low risk um, category. Um, in addition to that, any other factors that you considered uh, as your inclusion or exclusion criteria in, uh, in gathering these patients? Yes, yeah, so how we, how we defined ultra low risk to include these patients in the analysis of our study, they had to have FIGO grade one, endometrioid, endometrial cancer. Tumors could not have any lymphovascular space invasion or myometrial invasion. No one in this cohort received any adjuvant therapy, and they were stage 1A based on the 2009 FIGO straight staging criteria. We did have a couple uh, caveats for exclusion, and that was if anybody had a synchronous ovarian cancer diagnosed at the time of their surgery, or if they didn't have follow-up at minimum of 12 months, those patients would be excluded. Okay. And then um, you also did some um, MSI and mismatch uh, repair deficiency analyses in, in your study. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Of course. So in our institution at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we utilize immunohistochemistry, or IHC, for mismatch repair testing as a routine part of our pathologic reporting now as well as MSI sensor, which is a microsatellite instability test that's part of the molecular profiling of tumors that uses next generation sequencing methods. Mm -hmm. For the IHC, we test all four proteins. That's MLH1, PMS2, MSH2, and MSH6. If any one of those proteins were absent on immunohistochemistry, that is what we would call a mismatch repair deficient tumor based on IHC testing. They're proficient, however, if all of those proteins are staining appropriately on immunohistochemistry. Okay. For the MSI sensor, that's a totally separate test, and it's using DNA from tumor and next-generation sequencing methods. And what it's doing is it's looking for very specific defined sections in tumor DNA that we call microsatellite regions, and these are normal regions in DNA. It's where our base pair errors are screened and identified. If these locations in a tumor are mutated, they can get longer or shorter and generate instability in the tumor. And the MSI sensor test, we have these thresholds where if you find fewer than three of these areas in the tumor's DNA, that's a stable, microsatellite stable tumor. If you have 10 or more regions that are instable in a tumor, then that's MSI high or a microsatellite instable tumor. Anything in between is just an indeterminate, and that's how we defined our MSI sensor testing in this study. Okay. And now, Jenny, the, the results. Um, how many patients were included in the study, and what did you find? 
I'm particularly interested in, in the rate of recurrence also in this really low-risk population. So of all the patients we reviewed, we found 486 patients who met the inclusion criteria for our study, and that was about a third of the entire uh, number of patient charts that were reviewed okay. in the cohort. Patients' median age was 58 years, which is on average what we would expect for a cohort of endometrial cancer. Most patients identified as white and a median BMI body mass index at the time of their surgery of 31. Most patients had minimally invasive surgery with only 7% having surgery via laparotomy. Most were robotic and a few were laparoscopic. Most patients underwent sentinel lymph node mapping at our institution, which is standard of care for us in low-grade endometrial cancer with 20% undergoing pelvic lymph node dissection. 7% of patients had no lymph node dissection, but we did look into those charts and frozen section data was used, showed no myoinvasion, and so that is how that decision was made intraoperatively. So interesting, among this very low-risk patient group, there were 14 patients who met that criteria, 2.9% of the group who had a cancer recurrence. The recurrences were mostly low-grade, but there was one patient who recurred as grade 3, 80% of patients had just a single site of recurrence. Most of that was at the vaginal cuff, but there were two non-nodal pelvic recurrences and one lung recurrence. And most were treated with radiation therapy alone. The majority of our patients in this group were alive, 90%, at the time of their last follow-up, and about a third of those living patients have active disease. And Jenny, one of the things that I noticed also was the follow-up, um, that I noticed that the follow-up was shorter for patients who did not have a recurrence. Um, and my question is, how do you think this might have impacted your results? That's such a good point to raise and something we discussed at length together, actually. So the median follow-up for patients who had a recurrence was 50 months, and that's compared with those who did not recur the median follow-up was 34 months. So that's a, that's a significant difference when you just look at the numbers. And when you see a difference in median follow-up and you're looking at recurrence, it's possible that the patients who haven't recurred in our analysis would recur in the future and we just didn't capture it in the study. Mm -hmm. Or something else that I think is certainly present in retrospective studies is the bias that might be present in this low-risk population. So. Oftentimes in our practice, if we have a very low risk endometrial cancer patient, we may decrease frequency of follow-up visits, or some of them, they come from a distance and they may choose to go to a local provider for their surveillance appointments. Mm -hmm. And we may, again, may not be able to capture recurrences within that cohort. So this has the potential to impact variables as we compare the groups. And it has to be something you think about when you're analyzing the data and just, and um, presenting the data to the to the public. Okay, and and Jenny, you mentioned uh, briefly uh, uh, the issue of weight or BMI, and I was wondering, uh, did age of the patient or BMI have any impact on the rate of recurrence? And if so, uh, why do you think that might have been? We did see that recurrent patients were older, so the the median age was sixty five compared with non recurrent patients with the age of fifty seven years. And they also, the recurrent patients had a lower median BMI, 27 versus 31, in this group. So 
In terms of age, I think age may be potentially relating to what we already know about age as a risk factor for recurrence in endometrial mm-hmm. cancer. We see this in multiple prior studies, GOG99, Portex series. So it may simply be a reflection of that, in, that understanding. Mm-hmm. The lower median BMI, you know, I, I've given some thought to that. It could be that you know, what we know about type 1 versus type 2 endometrial cancers, how we used to sort of think about and classify these cancers, the type 1 cancers being lower risk, associated more with obesity or insulin resistance, and the type 2 higher risk and not associated with obesity or insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. But I, what's not answered in our data is why this homogeneous group of tumors based on PATH would have these clinical phenotypes that don't at all fit with what we understand about what we think is low-risk endometrial cancer. So I do think it remains to be seen what the BMI finding is. It's interesting and could be further studied. Right. Uh, And probably also with uh, a larger number of patients, uh, we could get some clarification on that from future Mm -hmm. studies. Now, the the other point, obviously, what we want to learn about is um, the, the findings as it pertains to the mutational profiles and uh, the MSI status of these ultra-low-risk endometrioid cancers. And one of the things that I was particularly interested in is whether there was a difference in the mutational profiles of these patients that recurred uh, compared to those that did not. Yes, so as you mentioned, we analyzed the mutational profiles of our recurrent cancers and non-recurrent cancers nine recurrent cancers and 27 non-recurrent cancers that we looked at, mismatch repair, the MSI sensor score, and a next-generation sequencing assay that we have at MSK. It's called MSK Impact, and Mm -hmm. it looks at 468 cancer-implicated genes. So it's a very um, robust test. We we actually sequence now all new diagnosis of endometrial cancer. So we utilize those tests. We didn't see differences in clinical variables, pathologic variables, surgical factors between recurrent and non-recurrent tumors that had mutational profiling. The mutational burden was similar between the two. Most tumors were MS-stable, so microsatellite-stable, and there weren't significant differences in the MSI sensor scores between the two groups. The common mutations we found in this group were P10 and PIK3CA. These are really commonly described genes that are mutated in low-grade endometrial cancer. P10 was mutated in all of the recurrent tumors and about 60% of the non-recurrent tumors. PIK3CA was mutated in 56 of the recurrent tumors and 44% of the non-recurrent tumors. Notably, though, there was nothing significantly different. Those numbers might seem different, but they weren't significantly different between the two. I also thought it was interesting in our data set that one recurrent cancer case was pole E mutated. Mm-hmm. It wasn't different than the five non-recurrent cases when we did the statistical analysis, but clinically that's very interesting because we think of poly-mutated endometrial cancer as a better prognosis tumor. Mm-hmm. And there are some reports, uh, one of which my um, first author, Dr. Marina Stasenko, she authored a paper looking at that. And so we do understand that poly may not necessarily be a guarantee of being a good actor tumor. And then we also looked at TP53. This is the copy number high, serous-like category, typically. We didn't see a difference there. And then, as you and I had talked about earlier on this podcast, beta-catenin mutations, definitely of interest in this group because we enriched to find them. This is a low-risk, low-grade cohort. 
but we didn't see any difference between the two. Yeah, so um, obviously when when you look at a, at a lead article, there's a lot of eyes on the, on the lead article and there are some who might be critical of certain aspects of the article. So what do you think might be the major criticisms of your study and, and how would you address those? I, I love this question. I think it's so important that we acknowledge and address limitations in the scientific inquiry that's being published. We should be open to it and embrace it because we want to make good decisions for our patients. So what I would say in this paper, things to think about is our number of cases are small. We did capture nine out of 14 cases of recurrence in a very uncommon scenario of recurrent, really, really low risk endometrial cancer. So it's good data capture, but it's still small numbers. Mm -hmm. So what we did to increase our data yield and to strengthen the analysis, knowing that limitation is we matched three to one essentially for non-recurrent cases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's an acknowledged limitation that you can do your best to strengthen, but you have to simply acknowledge it so that people can contextualize your findings. Mm -hmm. We also didn't perform comprehensive mutational profiling, and some would critique our work and say, why didn't you do copy number analysis or other next-generation sequencing methodologies that could have been more broadly profiling your tumors. Um, what we decided to use is efficient, cost-effective for our institutional algorithms, sequencing and testing like MSI sensor, MSK impact, immunohistochemistry, because this is all readily available. And if we found something interesting, it would have been easier to try and validate that in a similar pop population of patients moving forward. So mm -hmm. that was one thing we had talked about. And I would say finally, we mentioned it, but the follow-up differences between groups is important to acknowledge. If you read through some of the prior work on beta-catenin, some of these recurrences in beta-catenin mutated endometrial cancer are 40 and 80 months beyond the diagnosis, mm -hmm. which is unique. It's a different um, finding than when we, what would we expect in other endometrial cancer cases. So the follow-up difference may be a true bias in this paper. And what we tried to do is make sure everyone had at least one year of follow-up to capture the majority of recurrences in the study population. So, Jenny, one of the things that, um, that obviously many readers will say is, well, what's my take-home message and, and how do I change my practice? And, and my question is, based on, on the results of the study, should we pursue mutational sequencing analyses on patients with ultra-low risk endometrial cancer at all? So if you just take our study results, we don't have data in this paper that shows unique mutational differences between patients with ultra-low risk endometrial cancer who recurred and didn't recur. So based on the paper alone, the answer is no. That said, we did identify a small percentage of patients that don't have any clear risk factors other than their age who recurred, and it's still not clear yet how we can properly identify these at-risk patients. So. I would advocate that we need to continue including patients in mutational profiling as it is reasonable and possible for the purpose of multi-institutional collaborations to mm -hmm. increase numbers of patients in our analysis because these differences may be in the denominator. So if we expand our denominator, we may find more relevant differences, particularly in beta-catenin. And I think if you start to do this routinely as the resources are available for you at your institution, 
you're going to identify at-risk populations more readily because you're you're giving yourself the material to ask the question to get the answer, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So then now looking at the future, the next year, two years, three years, um, exciting studies or studies that are ongoing. Uh, you talk a little bit about the Portec 4 trial. Um, what do you think the results of that trial will add to our practice? Well, Portec 4, it is a very exciting trial. It's to me because it's randomizing women with high intermediate risk, stage one and stage two endometrial cancer. So this group of people where we're still trying to, rather than lump them, we want to split them based on risk. Mm -hmm. And it's integrating molecular profiling into a group we might have otherwise just simply said vaginal brachytherapy for your risk. And it's integrating exactly the things we're discussing on this podcast. It's integrating poly mutations, mismatch repair testing, beta-catenin testing, and it's stratifying patients on what we would consider favorable molecular aspects versus unfavorable molecular aspects and trying to determine can we appropriately treat patients? Can we observe some of the favorable profile patients and have them do well? And can we maybe escalate treatment to pelvic radiotherapy for those unfavorable patients and help them do better? So I'm very excited about this trial because it's it's trying to take a population that we are still relying heavily on pathologic risk and clinical risk and taking it another step further in a prospective fashion so we can gain a lot of good information um, out of this particular study. Great. So Jenny, I've uh, learned so much in speaking with you and, and we're, we're running out of time, but I want to ask you one last question. Um, what did you learn uh, specifically from, from this study, from conducting the study, and then uh, any plans on moving forward on this topic? Well, I would say this, literally this study was a labor of love. It was born <laughs> out of my own intellectual curiosity. Why are these people recurring? This is so, this defies what I understand about this disease. And that has actually made the work so much more interesting and fulfilling. So as you know, a junior investigator at the time that I started this project, and for those listening, that is so important to keep your intellectual curiosity and your patient-centered approach at the heart of what you're doing as a researcher. It's what carries out good questions. It's what helps you have integrity in your work and helps you really persist with getting out the results that are so important. Um, so the study has led to more questions than answers as we have started discussing today. And what we're doing in our group is looking into larger cohorts and additional sequencing methods as well as like combining our efforts with other institutions, we want to add insight into what we're finding here and perhaps maybe even getting greater, better granularity around our findings. Um, and as I said before, I think this reinforces to me personally why we need to consider routine mutation profiling of endometrial cancer. So when we have good and really interesting questions that we want to ask for our patients, we have resources there to help answer them. Jenny, thank you so, so much. I have uh, really learned a great deal in speaking with you. Uh, thank you for, again, submitting the manuscript to the, uh, to the journal. Uh, congratulations on your work and congratulations to your team and uh, continue doing some great work. Thank you, Pedro. It's been such an honor and pleasure to be on this podcast. Thank you.